This hotel has the craziest story. So in 1871, there was this wealthy Chicago businessman named Potter Palmer, and he built this glamorous hotel, gifted it as an early wedding present to his socialite wife, right? Socialite wife, Bertha. And 13 days later, it mysteriously burned to the ground. So as a writer, you guys know you gather your ideas in the most fascinating, unexpected places. And I was still a year out working on Summer Darlings, and I filed that away, and I thought to myself, that is my next book. Welcome back to an all-new season of Off the Gram, the show where we bring you straight into the trenches with us to help you live your best life, channel your inner girl boss, and navigate the ever-changing landscapes of wellness and social media. Hey, ladies. Hi. Okay, so we're super excited to kick off a very special summer book club today with award-winning author, Brooke Lee Foster. So it's me and Heidi holding down the fort. Jamie couldn't make it. But a little bit more about Brooke. She is a writer and journalist whose articles have appeared in the New York Times, the Atlantic, Washington Post magazines, among many others. Her debut novel, Summer Darlings, was a top pick by Entertainment Weekly and named one of Parade's best books of the summer. Her second novel, On Gin Lane, which just came out in May, was celebrated as a best new book by People Magazine, which is humongous, people. Humongous. <laughs> I love that one. And Elin Hildebrand, another favorite author, called the book Utterly captivating. Oh, oh, and Town and Country Magazine, another Hearst publication. I actually share a floor with Town and Country. They heralded it on Gin Lane as a must-read book of summer. Yay! When you hear that, I just am like, oh, I'm so excited. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we're just so excited to have everybody hear about it. So clearly we've heard the perfect book and the perfect author to kick off this new Off the Gram summer series where we sit down with some of today's hottest fiction writers and have them divulge all and then read to us a little, which is very exciting. So everybody, listen to this show if your book club is dying for its next must-read pick, you've always wondered how fiction writers make this stuff up, or you want a little sip of Anjin Lane straight from the author's mouth. She's going to read an excerpt. Okay, welcome, Brooke. I am so excited to meet you because as a self-help nonfiction writer, I always fangirl a little over fiction writers because my secret dream is honestly to like lock myself in my Vermont cabin and write some like wild and crazy fantasy novel. (laughs) I used to be there. I was that person too. That's what I actually want to do. (laughs) So we recently had the ultimate book fluencer, Zibby Owens, on the show, and she influenced all of us to pick up on Gin Lane, which is being met with so much praise. So Brooke, I always love to hear this straight from the author's mouth. Can you summarize on Gin Lane in your own author words? Oh, yes. So on Gin Lane is about a socialite named Everly Farrows, who is newly engaged to an auto magnet son. He kind of seems like the cat's meow. And he whisks her off to the Hamptons for a weekend, which she thinks is a weekend. And when they get there, they get to Gin Lane in Southampton, and he gifts her a hotel as an early wedding present. Like a whole hotel. (laughs) A whole hotel. I have to ask, did you base it off that pink hotel on the beach right there that used to be there? There was like a pink hotel for the longest. It wasn't based off of it? I did not. But I have a really fascinating story of how I came up with the idea. But first, let me just finish what it's about. So they get to the hotel. He gifts it to her. She's a little ambivalent because he announces they're staying for the summer. And she thought they were coming for the weekend. Like she has a girl bag for the weekend, you know, and suddenly they're staying and she didn't have a say in it. 
And two nights later, they have this really glamorous grand opening party where the who's who of the Hamptons of the summer of 1957. Oh my God, I forgot the biggest part. Summer of 1957, this takes place. And Arthur Miller and Marilyn Monroe come in all the, you know, glitterati of the time. And that night they go to bed and the hotel mysteriously burns to the ground. <gasps> chills, chills. No, I know, right? And this, the book is about them kind of picking up the pieces. So it turns out her fiance is now broke and trying to figure out how to rebuild this hotel. They are still going to stay for the summer. Their relationship begins to unravel a bit. She kind of falls in with the Bohemian Hamptons. And the pages fly because the reader is trying to figure out what happened at this hotel? Was it burned down? Was it an accident? So it's really the story of a woman kind of coming of age and finding her voice in a time when women didn't have a voice, but it's packaged in an action-packed mystery, which is the kind of book I love to read, right? Like I love historical fiction. I love mystery and I love women's fiction. So I kind of pushed them all together. This book is for me. I need the mystery to like be like, okay, kids, leave me alone for five more minutes. Totally. Totally. And that's what like keeps you going, right? Because you want to know what happens. But I got the idea really quick to answer your question, Heidi. It was when I was researching a little, because I write historical fiction. So it's kind of a mix of journalism, my journalism background and fiction. And I was researching where a society woman would stay, like a young woman would stay in Chicago in 1962, which is when my first book took place in Martha's Vineyard. And it turns out it would be the Palmer House Hotel on the Chicago Loop, which is kind of like the equivalent of the plaza in New York City. Well, this hotel has the craziest story. So in 1871, there was this wealthy Chicago businessman named Potter Palmer, and he built this glamorous hotel, gifted it as an early wedding present to his socialite wife, right? Socialite wife, Bertha. And 13 days later, it mysteriously burned to the ground. So as a writer, you guys know, you gather your ideas in the most fascinating, unexpected places. And I was still a year out working on Summer Darlings. And I filed that away and I thought to myself, that is my next book. And that is exactly what happened. When I was ready to write again, I pulled that back out and I was like, no, it's going to be there in the Hamptons. You know, they start out in the city. It's like the Hamptons is an area I know very well. And it just felt so glamorous to put it in the summer of 1957 because that's when Marilyn Monroe was very famously out there with Arthur Miller. So, Well, it's so funny because I always, we've been going out to Southampton every summer since I met my husband and we've been together for like 21 years. And we always go to that, to one of the main beaches. I guess I shouldn't tell everybody where I go, but, um, <laughs> but we used to go in the winter and bring our dog and go running on the beach. Yeah. And so you see so much more, right? Because there's not the foliage, the Purveys are the privets are um, you can kind of see through right yeah, a little bit yeah yeah because there's no foliage and yeah. so and there's this like building on the beach that it was pink and it just looked like a motel from like a hotel from the fifties and it used to have like green and white awnings and like it was straight out of the fifties yeah so I always I was like it feels like Marilyn Monroe would have been there like it just looks like it you know so when you said what you said I was like it was that hotel but it wasn't even that hotel that's amazing no no. <laughs> And, you know, there were other hotels out there at the time, but they all burned down, actually. And that wasn't what I based my book on, but I learned that later. You know, there was a big one in the village of Southampton, but they were made of wood back then. I mean, it's crazy. One match of these things And everybody right smoked now. cigarettes, right? That was probably part of the Terrifying. Problem. Yes. Yes. Terrifying. All right. So let's get to one of the reviewers said, quote, Anjan Lane encapsulates the very best of historical fiction. 
end quote. So you're an alumni of the Writing Institute at Sarah Lawrence College and author of three nonfiction books in addition to your novels. Can you share a little bit about your journalistic background and how that helped you sort of really capture the details of the time period like you do? Yeah, absolutely. So I got my start in magazine journalism at the City Magazine, Washingtonian in D.C., and I feel really lucky because I, I started there at a time when long form narrative nonfiction was the thing. So I actually, at like a very young age, was writing these 6,000 to 8,000 word pieces, which we don't have the attention span for anymore, guys. But back then, people and didn't we won't, And we can't pay for them. We don't have the pages and we can't pay for them in the magazine world. Well, in the amount of time they take, right? So I would spend five to six weeks with these subjects, whoever I was writing about. You know, one, I wrote about the Gallaudet University football rugby team. Sorry, they were, um, that's the deaf university in DC and they had a hearing coach and he didn't know any sign language. And it was how he ended up leading them through this winning season. We didn't know what was going to happen in the end, but I spent the whole season like on buses with this like deaf rugby team. So it was, I it's like a documentarian, it really right? was. <laughs> it all led up to writing fiction. If I, you know, when I think about it, because I was writing these stories that needed a beginning, a middle and an end, you know, they were all written in scene form and everything had to be factually correct, right? Because it's journalism. So with historical fiction, it's very similar. I have to make sure that everything, so, so everything is correct. So it's not only what were they drinking, gin and tonics, grasshoppers made that green drink with vermouth in it, this awful thing, but something <laughs> like but the gin lime Ricky, which is my favorite from the time, which is all the lime juice mixed in with the gin and tonic. Oh, it's so good. A little mint in there. Um, so what were they drinking? What were they eating? Like jello molds with like salmon in it. Weird stuff, right? But then, you know, they also had burgers sometimes. Like one of the famous things they ate at the Southampton Bathing Court, which is one of the most exclusive beach clubs out there, is called an embellished hot dog. And it's literally the beloved thing to eat there. It's like the richest people in the world are eating hot dogs with American cheese and relish on top. Like that's what they love, which I just thought that was great. And that's been there since 1957. They were eating that. But I needed to know that. And so if they reach for aspirin, right, they're reaching for a glass bottle, not a plastic one. Everything has to be factually correct. And then not only is it this detail that you're focusing on, but it's the mindset of the time. So how would a woman think of herself and the world around her in 1957? So I have to research how people were talking, how women saw themselves. And the way I did that is actually, I don't know, I love it as a journalist. I'm sure you guys would love it too. But you kind of dive into articles written at the time and advertisements that were printed at the time. So for example, I remember reading a Cosmo article from that year, that exact year, where it was how to be an attentive wife when your husband gets home. And it was Cosmo, which is funny, right? Because you wouldn't think Cosmo would ever run something like that. It would be like, you know, how to be sexy for your, you know, ever. So it was like, rub his feet, start a fire. I mean, this was like really in the, I mean, it's like, you're not, you, you feel like you're making it up. And then at one point I found this great advertisement and I ended up using it in the book. And it was a picture, it was a Budweiser ad, right? And it was a woman with her husband and she had these beautiful like pink coupe glasses with gold on them. And it was, she was pouring the Budweiser in these coupe glasses and serving it to her husband. And I just thought that was so fascinating, right? Because it's not, it's, first of all, it's Budweiser, but like who wants a Budweiser? But that's what women were marketed to. They were marketed to serve it, not to enjoy it. So think of the ad today, right? As a woman, what we would see, we would see treat yourself, 
right? And we would be sipping it. So, so that mindset of the way women were taught to, you know, the pressures they put on themselves and who they were expected to be were very different. So I had to write with that. But Brooke, do you like sketch out, okay, here's the basic story, like the beginning and the middle and the end, and then do that research? Or does that research then inform the beginning and the middle of the end? Okay, so people do it very differently. I always say I'm probably the most inefficient writer on the planet because I, I I know my beginning and I know my end, but I never totally know the middle. And I think that that's what works for me. I don't have, I don't sketch out plot points. I can't write that way. I like to write like a journalist, a really messy rough draft that I'm going to go back and fix. And that's exactly how I write. So I write with placeholders. I write with TK, which is our shorthand for to come in journalism, Right. There's so many TKs. People will read early drafts and be like, what is TK? I'm like, okay, okay. <laughs> so I even do sometimes placeholder dialogue. And I know generally what the dialogue is going to be there. But I know I have to come back and really figure out the scene in more detail and get specifically into cadence and how to sound more colloquial in that moment. So I just kind of plow through and I write as fast as I can. And I don't write like, you know, in a week or anything. It's still a few months or four, three or four months. But I just get the draft down because I find I have to figure out what I'm going to say first. And then I go back and do the research. So I wrote the first draft of Anjin Lane. And then I went to the historical societies, the librarians, archivists. I interviewed all people who lived out there at the time and found out what it was like. And then I went through and added all the detail work we do even in journalism, right, where we kind of make all of the prose come alive with what really was going on there. So it wasn't just like what was going on in the country and women's lives. It was what was happening in the Hamptons in 1957. But so, you started with the hotel. So the inspo was the hotel in Chicago. But then why the Hamptons? Why Gin Lane? Do you have a personal connection or interest in this area outside of Marilyn Monroe? I do. So I grew up about 30 minutes away on the North Shore of Eastern Long Island. And every summer we would pack up the car and, and, you know, drive through the Hamptons to get out to Montauk, where I have family who are summer residents and family that live there year round. And I just remember as a kid, like going, there's this point where you turn into East Hampton and there's these two beautiful duck ponds and gracious elm trees, like form a canopy over the road. And you pass like the old, it's still there though, but it's this old glass front building of the East Hampton star. And there's these tight private hedgerows, you know, it's the Hamptons. So I just would look at this as a kid and think it looked like this big, exceptional park and wondered to myself who got to live in these perfect houses and you know who are these people whose lives looked so utterly perfect and beautiful and as I got older and became a journalist and started interviewing all different types of people from all different types of backgrounds what I realized is that they're just like me they were just people who you know are suffering from heartbreak and sorrow and longing and you know all the things we are all thinking about they're just playing out in much bigger houses with much fancier <laughs> furniture, right? And so I love And they that. can hire much more help. And they and they have help. Yes, exactly. But I do love that because I think it's so amazing to kind of go into what seems like the most perfect life and realize that it's not so perfect. We're all struggling. And I think that's partly why I picked the Hamptons and Martha's Vineyard, because they both seem like everyone's lives play out there. So I'm such a Jersey girl. So I know nothing about the Hamptons, but Gin Lane, these are like $60 million homes, right? Like this isn't just like, that's the big house. Yeah, exactly. Like more and more and more. Yeah. And and in like hundred million dollar homes, Megs and more. (laughs) And, and it's interesting because in the Hamptons, like if you're South of the highway, closer to the ocean, all the housing prices go up even more. And if you're North of the highway, they're still insane, but they go a little down. Like there's all like 
shades of gray there. But and yeah. so you talked about like people in the Hamptons, you learning that they have the same heartbreaks and you know struggles as everyone else. Yeah. And is that when you mentioned struggle, is that why you picked the 1950s because of what you learned with like the Budweiser ads and like the mentality of women? Oh yeah. So I wanted my character to be completely reined in by the time period. So. Women at that time were expected to get a Mrs. degree. You know, they went to college to meet a husband. They weren't expected to do anything with their lives. You know, they were pressured to be the happy homemaker and live out that ad that I was talking about earlier. But so many women were unhappy at that time. That's kind of the fascinating thing for me, right? Is on the outside, women looked amazing. They had the most amazing clothes and and they seemed to socialize more and just like always be out like sipping gin and tonics and smoking and looking so cool. But deep down, there was a lot of unhappiness and a lot of women relied on that mother's little helper pill, you know, a little antidepressant to keep them going throughout the day. There was a lot of day drinking. And I wanted my character Everly to come into that time, kind of encapsulating that longing that so many women felt at the time. So even the cover of the book is a woman kind of looking off longingly, wistfully at the beach. And I think that's why we picked it. That's why it felt like it suited the book so well. Because women weren't allowed to dream then. You know, they weren't allowed to wake up and think to themselves, what am I going to do with my time today? It wasn't about The cover is beautiful. She has Marilyn vibes. So you can't see it, but we'll put it on the show notes or we'll put it in the Instagram post. But she's so elegant and she has like one of those fabulous bathing suits from the time period. She has these long, elegant legs. Don't you want those oh legs? Gosh, I mean, yes. I would die to do this That's like my joke about my cover. I'm like, oh God, I wish I had those legs. <laughs> <laughs> But it's funny because my main character is a brunette. So that was kind of the discussion is, should we put a blonde on the cover? It's just that this photo, we were given about 10 choices of covers, which I think is a little bit unheard of in publishing. But they showed us 10 possibilities. And we all just, my editor, my agent, and I all separately on different emails just immediately gravitated toward this. And I think it's not that she's blonde. It's just that longing that she really feels. And that's really, I think, what my character, you know, experiences over the course of the summer. She wants something else. It's not that, I think what she realizes in the end is she wants to be married. She wants to have children. She wants to have all of the traditional trappings she's been told. She wants more and that's okay. I think as women, we often feel as though we need permission to want more and we don't. And even though this book takes place in 1957, you know, she, I'm giving her that permission and I'm kind of rewriting history a little bit and allowing her to go after something she really wants. So you've told us a lot about your writing process. I'm wondering if some of our listeners are perhaps aspiring authors. So do you have any advice for listeners who are like, I know I have a book in me. I want to do this too. Okay, so my biggest piece of advice is butt in seat. And what I mean by that is show up every day to write. And I know our lives are crazy and not everyone can write every day. This is my career, right? But other people are juggling this in between being a doctor or a lawyer. I've met a lot of them in my writing classes. But the truth is, if you can even get an hour, even if you're daydreaming with a notebook and writing down ideas or dialogue, you have to keep your head in your book. You can't write one day and then two weeks later, come back to it. It's just going to be this long, excruciating process. You've got to write it down. So I find as I show up every day, even for a short amount of time, I will get the story done. And I really, really believe that. I also said earlier, I believe in the the messy rough draft, but also Anne Hull is a, she was a Pulitzer Prize winning reporter at the Washington Post. And I once went to a conference where she spoke and she wrote on the whiteboard, like very dramatically, rewriting is a gift. 
And I think as a young journalist, I saw rewriting as just a big pain in the neck. And I'm like, God, how many times am I going to have to revise these articles? But when she said that and, and, and explained what she meant, I was so taken by that. And what she said is that, you know, there's very few careers out there where you get a do-over. And in journalism, you really get to write it over and over until it's perfect. And you have that, you have that chance. And I think that's true with fiction too. Writing is a gift. You get to keep staying in your story and make it better until it's just right. So don't rush it out the door. Amazing. That's really amazing. So what a great reframe. Yeah. Right? (laughs) I know, seriously. (laughs) Make it positive. So I'm totally sold. Obviously, I have a personal connection to Gin Lane, but I don't think anyone needs one because everybody knows the Hamptons and Gin Lane is the most famous address in the Hamptons. So now can you pretty please give our listeners a little teaser of what's in store for them? Yes. Yes. (laughs) So I am going to read from the party scene in chapter, it's the second chapter just to kind of bring readers a little close to the scene with Marilyn Monroe, because it was so fun to write. I really want to share it. And I'm ju- I'm jumping around just a little bit, but I think it's better for the reader because, you know, you don't need everything. I mean, the listener. The night beat on, and in between bits of conversation and three rolls of film, Everly nibbled pineapple chicken skewers near Roland, who was entertaining a group of smug Wall Street types, the greedy and enterprising former jocks who built nothing but bank accounts and were enamored of Whitaker auto money. It was 11 now, and she was using a white cloth napkin to clean pineapple sauce off her finger when she heard an audible murmur sweep over the crowd, a collective gasp, even though everyone kept talking. She craned her neck to see the spot where everyone else was trying not to look. At the back corner of the conservatory, near the French doors that led to the pool, a buxom blonde in a simple powder blue tank dress had entered. It couldn't be her. Everly hunted the woman's face for the signature mole that marked the space above her famously pouty lips. She tugged on Roland, pulling him away from the money guys and the cloud of cigar smoke around them. Is that who I think it is, she whispered. We need to thank them for coming, said Everly, replying her red lipstick in a compact pulled from her silk clutch. I'm jumping ahead a little bit. He squeezed her hand. Roland squeezed her hand back as a familiar guitar riff broke through the room the band launching into Buddy Holly's That'll Be the Day, as platters of chocolate-covered strawberries and slices of coconut cake crisscrossed the room on silver trays. It's my favorite song, Roland yelled to Everly as they pushed through the smoky crowd, his face aglow with drink. What are the odds that such a grand moment would have a soundtrack? She threw her head back, feeling exuberant, and then there they were, next to the tall date palm where the famous couple stood. Roland tapped Arthur Miller on his shoulder. The playwright was taller than Roland by at least a few inches and introduced himself. I was wondering who was behind this place, Mr. Miller said. His black, shiny, thick-rimmed glasses overtook his whole face, even his prominent nose. Art Miller, nice to meet you. I'll have you know that I think Congress was being heavy-handed in convicting you of your un-American activities, Roland said. And Everly smiled through her cocktail, wondering why Roland would choose to bring up something so utterly awkward. He always said the right thing. He must have been nervous. I mean, your work stands on its own, whether you're a communist or not. Well, I'm not a communist, Mr. Miller chuckled, pushing a hand into his pocket. I'm an easy target with this brilliant girl on my arm, but thank you. Everly tried to change the subject. I went to see The Crucible when it was at the Martin Beck Theater on Broadway a few years ago. It was very powerful. She glanced at the actress, who was petite and unassuming up close, other than her curves, and Everly tried to acknowledge her with a sideways smile. 
Marilyn sipped champagne. You know that Art vowed that if it wasn't a commercial success, he'd stop writing forever. Then he won the Pulitzer. Actually, love, that was for death of a salesman, he said quietly, only to her, like he was afraid his words might break his famous wife. I'm Everly Farrow, she said in her perkiest tone, reaching out to shake Marilyn's hand. Roland and I are delighted you came by tonight. Are you here all summer? Oh, yeah, sorry, this is my fiancé, Everly, Roland laughed, his cheeks red. Oh, you're the lucky girl that inspired this place. I read something of that in the Charlie Knickerbocker column this morning. Marilyn took in the tall glass ceilings of the conservatory. Her cheeks were flush and she seemed a bit drunk. Did you have a hand in it? Everly shook her head, leaning back on her heels, suddenly feeling proud. The hotel was an early wedding present, a surprise. Art's tone turned sarcastic. Apparently I'm in the wrong field. Marilyn pointed at Everly's camera. You take photographs? Everly examined the lens, smiling. It's a hobby. Well, maybe it should be a passion. The actress said it with a glimmer in her eye. Every woman should have something that keeps them getting up in the morning. Marilyn leaned into her ear. It could be a baby, I suppose, but it shouldn't be your husband, no matter what other women try to tell you. Make yourself a living and no one can boss you around. Everly got a vision of her younger self at Barnard, her time at the campus newspaper when she held a notebook against her palm, how her favorite part was when she'd pull out her camera and capture whoever was in the frame, how much satisfaction she got when she saw her photograph printed alongside a story in the paper. It wasn't that she lacked ambition. It was that her ambition was treated like child's play. Her parents expected her to get married, establish a household, build a life around being a couple. She was to ease her husband's strain, not distract from it with her own desires, and she accepted that. My goal really is to be a good wife, she smiled at Roland, who put his arm around her. And mine, a swell husband, said Roland, and she was glad Whitney wasn't there to witness this blind devotion. She would have stuck a finger in her mouth and gagged. Marilyn laughed. Well, aren't you two adorable? The crowd pulsed closer, one gentleman with broad shoulders stepping in to introduce himself, And even as they all shook his hand, then his wife's, Everly clicked through a slideshow in her mind. She pictured herself after the wedding, the wife of Roland Whitaker, standing in the foyer holding a leather planner, the keeper of the golden appointment book, curating a list of interesting social engagements. There she was, dabbing her mouth twice after each bite and eating escargot to impress Roland with her exotic palate sitting at a table with a white tablecloth with the same haircut as the woman next to her and the woman next to her, all of them with some variation of the same makeup, all of them wearing a frost of jewels around their moisturized wrists, all of them members of some strange species of woman whose money afforded them the great privilege of being exactly the same. Yes! Oh my gosh, I can't wait to read this book. (laughs) And I have this new appreciation of all these incredible details, having heard how you research. Yes. Interesting. That's interesting. Yeah. Silk purse. It's not straw. The purse was silk, right? Right. And and he says swell, not that's cool, right? Like just those little nuances. It's true. In the Buddy Holly song, right? You know, that'll be the day. And yeah, the moisturized wrists. I feel like women back then were always moisturizing their wrists. And wearing gloves to yes. keep their hands soft. Yes. Now, do you Absolutely. do the Audible? So if we buy the Audible, is it you reading to us? It is not me. No, we hire an audiobook reader. I don't know that I could do it. I mean, that's the first time I've read on a podcast, but I think reading a whole book would be really hard. It takes like three days. 
I did mine yeah. with COVID. So I had, I literally had COVID and recorded mine with COVID. I was reading that in here. Yes, I know. So you she know. has an extra sexy voice for hers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> a little sultry, a little COVID sultry. It's, I mean, my voice is always kind of like this, but it, it was definitely like, and it was like a, a like an intense labor of love. Like it, yeah. it's hard work. It's really hard, it's work. hard work. Yeah. You know, it's funny because when I was reading this book yesterday, I got to the part what really matters to me. And I was reading through that. And I was like, you know, if we're not doing anything all that different, it's like I'm delivering the answer that you give here prescriptively through fiction, because that's really what she's figuring out, right? Like Everly's figuring out what really matters to me. I just found it really interesting because I was like, they are actually, these books are more connected than you think. Yeah, it's neat. Well, it's just about how the reader can digest the information, right? Like some people can't read nonfiction. Yeah. Totally. So, and some people can only read nonfiction. I, so I want to write fiction. I said it here. I'm saying it out loud. My, my, I love it. I need to do one. I'm going to hold you accountable, Meg. But I've got some fiction in me. You definitely do. Okay. So I feel like this is a good way to segue into our last thing, Meg's call. Carmichael. I make <laughs> Megan say that every week because she says it so amazingly with such exuberance. But I am the resident yogi. So I will explain that karma is a Sanskrit word for action. So we ask all of our amazing, inspiring guests, you, what is one small actionable item that our listeners could take for a short period of time that would yield a large result? So small action, big result. And you were just talking about your fiction process. So I didn't know if it was something to do with that. Let me think about this. I mean, one of the things I try to do is always deliver a little sense of positivity when I meet someone. I know that sounds crazy because I was telling friends this recently and they were like, what's wrong with you? But I do think that there's so much negativity in the world today, especially with how stressed people are and just what we've gone through as a society that I find that when I just meet up with, you know, whether it's someone walking the dog who I talk to a lot or at pickup, you know, people come into their day with so much. And so I try to just, I don't know, I I tend to be a really sunny, positive person. So I try to share that a little bit, not to say I don't struggle or that I don't cry or that I don't have anxiety because I struggle with all is struggle with that. But I do try to leave a little sense of positivity with other people, whether it's in the form of a compliment or asking them to have coffee or figuring out what's on their mind. You know, I have a, I, I feel like from years of being a journalist and also writing fiction, I'm a bit intuitive and I can get a sense from someone's face if they're stressed about something. So I don't hold back. I don't, you know, feel funny saying, are you OK? Is everything OK? You know, are you stressed? You know, at, at what's happening? And I find that people really appreciate that because no one really asks anyone, are you OK? So I give all of the listeners permission just to reach out to people around you and try to make those connections because it's not only going to make the other person happy, it's going to make you happy. I love, I love it. Love it so much. <laughs> OK, so before we let you go, where can all of our listeners find you on the gram? Uh, okay, so I'm Brooke Lee Foster on Instagram, and I'm also Brooke Lee Foster author on TikTok, and Brooke Lee Foster writes on Facebook. And what what's next for you in terms of tours? Can people find you in person? Yes, which is amazing because with my first book, I was not in person at all because um, it came out in lockdown. So I will be- I'm with you. <laughs> right? I know. You know how it was. So July 14th, it's a Thursday, I'll be at the Rams Head Inn on Shelter Island doing a fireside chat book talk, which it's this beautiful old hotel on the island, you know, that sits in between the two forks of Long Island. If you're not going to come to my book talk, I highly recommend trying to get out there and go to dinner there. It's beautiful. 
I'll be at the East Hampton Authors Night on August, I believe it's 11th. I'll be one of the authors featured there. And then I'm going to be signing books at Mitchell's Books on Nantucket on August 19th. And that's, yeah, that's what I've got going so far. Amazing. And are you already working on another book? Did you collect another nugget while you were doing this? Oh, I certainly did. I certainly did. Yeah, so I'm done with that book. And when I say done, that just means it's in the hands of my agent. Obviously, it'll go through a lot of revisions um, still. But I wasn't ready to leave the Hamptons. So I just moved up ahead in time a little bit to 1967. It's a dual timeline, 1967 and 1977. And it's about these two friends, one a local girl, one a summer resident, who are harboring a dark secret in their friendship. And do, do, do. See, I love these like elements of mysteries packed into these beach towns. Me too. That's what keeps me coming back. Totally. Keeps me coming back. Love it. And I feel like this book also is giving me like Rebecca vibes with like the burning down and the. Yes, Natalie Jenner. She she called it like a modern day Rebecca. Yeah. Which was my favorite book forever. I love Rebecca. So I know. This one is a shoe in. Yay. (laughs) So excited. All right. Well, thank you so much, Brooke. We are all so excited to dive into your amazing books and just can't wait for all of the ones to keep coming out and for everyone to listen to them. I mean, after that excerpt, I can't imagine anyone not buying your book immediately. Anywhere books are sold. So thank you so much. Thank you so much for being with us and reading to us and chatting with us. And thank you so much to all of our listeners for tuning in. Make sure that you follow us on the gram at Off the Gram Podcast. And of course, subscribe to our podcast anywhere you can listen to your podcasts. And always be sure to leave us a five star review if you love us. And we will see you next time. Bye. Bye.